there. Thank you for connecting with me and subscribing to the Living the Sky Life podcast. I hope that the content of each episode brings you hope, connection, and some valuable takeaways. The Special Needs Parenting Village is large, so you should never feel like you have to travel this journey alone. Please connect with me through my website, Facebook page, or Instagram account, and let's keep this conversation going after each episode airs. If you are enjoying the podcast and are listening on Apple iTunes, please leave a rating and review or share Living the Sky Life with others. Thanks again for tuning in to Season 2 of Living the Sky Life. Today's guest on Living the Sky Life is not too far from me over in Owensboro, Kentucky. I am so bummed that I didn't meet her before now and super excited that I have connected with her. She is an incredible individual who has an amazing story to tell about her upbringing um, with a sibling with a disability and what she has done with that experience and the passion that she shares is just incredible. So a little bit of background about Amanda. Uh, Amanda Owen is the executive director of Puzzle Pieces, which is a nonprofit organization based out of Owensboro, Kentucky, that serves individuals with intellectual disabilities. Amanda's whole life has been centered around loving, advocating, and impacting those with disabilities. Her passion and drive comes from having a brother with a disability, while also being a former special education teacher for six years. Amanda is also the woman behind Pieces of Me, a blog and podcast that aims to help those affected by disabilities and other women trying to chase their dreams. We have a lot to talk about, so please enjoy my conversation with Amanda Owen. So on today's episode of Living the Sky Life, I have the pleasure of talking to Amanda Owen, who is literally in my backyard in Owensboro, (laughs) Kentucky, and I didn't even know she was there and all the things we're going to talk about with her organization. So I'm thrilled to have found you. So welcome to the podcast. Yes. Thanks for having me. I know we're like a hop and a skip away. I know it's crazy when you start really digging into just disability services and autism and all the things in your area and you uncover people that have been doing amazing things that you didn't know anything about. So I love that I'm learning all the time about you guys. So, um, so I want to like, kind of just start our discussion, um, with how disabilities and, um, just how this whole world came to be for you and why you're so passionate about helping others. I know that you have an older brother, Nick, who has a uh, rare chromosome disability. And so I think in a lot of your background and a lot of your bios, you talk about your, um, your relationship with your brother and just being a sibling to someone with a disability and how that kind of fuels you. So can you tell us a little bit about growing up with Nick and your childhood. <laughs> yeah. I feel like I talk about Nick a lot more now than I ever have, um, which is great. It's great. But yeah, I, I, my brother is older than I am. So I'm actually 36 years old. I'm not one I I'm pushing 40, so I'm embracing it, but growing up. So he's older than I am. He will actually be 40 this year, which is crazy to think. So he actually, He grew up in the time before ADA, before social media, like my mom didn't have an outlet. And so when he was born, he was the 11th person in the United States to ever be born with his disability. And so I really didn't, my parents found out when he was six weeks old, I kind of started asking questions when I was five. So my mom I mean, I kind of remember, but my mom was like, you are always nurturing. You are always like telling your brother what to do and how to do it. 
and I was kind of like his natural teacher. So at five years old, I told my mom that I wanted to be a teacher, um, just like to help my brother, because I remember my mom, I vividly remember my mom and my dad, like crying after what was called then I didn't know IEP meetings, <laughs> like this word IEP and this word disability and accommodations and her just crying, wishing for more. Mm-hmm. And I just felt like I, I naturally wanted to do more. And so really my calling is about my brother, but I think a lot of it growing up and becoming a special education teacher, I knew it from a very young age, that's what I wanted to do. And now what I do, I think it was really a sole purpose of what I wish that my parents had that I wanted to solve for them versus really of providing my brother with something different. And I think mm-hmm. that that's come with the impact of being the sibling and, and seeing it living life. Um, you know, I, I saw it, I was kind of the outside person looking in, if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. I'm sure it's mind boggling for you once you kind of went down this path after being a special education teacher and then starting your nonprofit, which we'll talk about of how many families are affected by um, someone with a disability in their family, their children. It, it blows my mind every day, just learning the autism statistics, let alone the multiple other disabilities and categories that are out there. I think whenever I became a special education teacher and going through college, you know, I was kind of this, you know, I mean, how hard can it be? Like, (laughs) I love my brother. I can deal with my brother, you know? And so when I became, I almost quit teaching my very first year of of being a special education teacher. I was in a self-contained classroom. It was the first exposure I had to autism. Really, whenever I was going through college, I went through Western Kentucky University, um, Mm -hmm. which is a great school. Um, But really... I graduated when I, in 2006. So from 2002 to 2006, I was in college and really that we didn't really have education behind autism. It was just kind of a thought and mm-hmm. we talked about it within, within college, but they don't really prepare you. <laughs> I mean, I knew strategies. I knew what to do, but that first year in college or that first year of teaching, I was like, whoa, not only are these families like my families and like hearing parents break down in IP meetings and like, what am I preparing? Cause I was a middle school teacher. So like their same fears and worries. I was like, Whoa, this is the first time I've experienced. I feel like I'm looking at my mom and my dad and I'm hearing yeah. them talk right now. And then I realized, wow, no one's like my brother, but also none of my students were alike either. So like I had six different students and that's when I really fell in love with autism um, and I went on to get my master's degree in autism and it, it just, it opened my eyes up to a whole lot more. Um, so yeah, I didn't realize the need, um, but the need of something for, to help families navigate and the need for really good quality people who care and put in teaching, um, teaching. I always say, this is my, my biggest thing of, I really wanted to be the teacher that, um, provided a classroom that allowed adjusted and shifted around my students and not making my students fit my classroom. And I think that we struggle with teachers and and programs of really just being cookie cutter and not adjusting and shifting. And I, I needed that for my brother because he was kind of the norm, you know, he was, he was not like anybody else. He kind of fell between the cracks and I wanted to adjust and shift and the need was huge. And I didn't realize I was kind of the trailblazer within that. Yeah. I mean, it's, it makes me feel old, but <laughs> the year you graduated from college was Skylar's diagnosis year and he was three. 
So in 2006, you're right. I mean, they're really, we got the diagnosis and it was kind of like you're handed a pamphlet about autism. And it was literally a pamphlet because there really was much more than that to explain and like, good luck. And here's some phone numbers of some therapies you might want to try. And it was kind of a grim prognosis. You know, I don't know that it'll ever talk. I don't know that it'll ever walk, you know, that kind of thing. And you're just, you're at a loss. And even then social media and podcasts and like all the stuff that we're doing wasn't available. So I think our biggest challenge was finding once we figured out what we needed or thought we needed is the resources because insurance was like, oh, no, 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 we don't, we don't pay for autism things like give us another diagnosis or another code because we don't pay for that. And so therapies were hard to find. And then when you find them, no one paid for them. And there were just no resources like with what you have for your nonprofit. So let's talk a little bit about that. It's called Puzzle Pieces and it's in Owensboro, right? It's right in Owensboro. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's probably going to be (laughs) franchised all over the place in a few years, the way you're going, but uh, (laughs) it's crazy to think that. um, individuals with intellectual disabilities from ages eight to adulthood. So, um, you know, it's a, it's a big, broad range. And so what is the concept, the general concept behind puzzle pieces and what kind of services do you offer since it is a significant age range of people that you support? So I could talk about this obviously forever, but, Uh um, we started out eight years ago. Um, I served 32 individuals. It was really who I was connected through for my teaching practice, you know, like through teaching and my brother. So we served 32 and the intention, the mission was really just to be like a social community. Like when my brother graduated high school and the, the, the ultimate fear I kept hearing from my students, parents, like, cause I was a middle school teacher, what does life after high school look like? And my brother, even though he could have a job, my brother was not motivated, nor did he want to carry on a job, but he graduated. He did not go to school till he was 21. He graduated when he was 18 because he hated school. But what I noticed um, was that when he graduated, he lost what school brought him, that structure, that daily having a purpose to go to, to get up to. And then also just like the connection with friendships, because he's not one that would talk on a phone or call a friend to stay connected. He needed to be alongside people. Mm -hmm. And when he graduated, there was nothing like that. And I I saw his regression or I saw him regress in skills. I saw him, um, his health regress. He, he became obese. Um, because he was not active, he wasn't engaged. And so whenever I started puzzle pieces, it was really just the intent for it to be a day program that they can connect with their friends and kind of not and do life skills and social skills. But man, has that blown into the the need of everything else. So like we're $2.4 million operating budget. We have all these different programs because some of these programs were not really designed for my brother. But are realizing that every, I think what we tend to do as a society, and this is the, this is what I'm trying to break down the barrier is what we do as a society, when we look at those with disabilities is that, well, they have a disability, they have an intellectual disability, so they should fall in this pocket. Like we should want this for them. Like as long as they're staying active and they're with their friends and they're happy, that's really the only thing, the goal behind it. So even as teachers, we transition them into Let's go to a day program or let's get into special Olympics or, and all that's great. I mean, I have two day programs. So 
I think what I grew puzzle pieces into going is to, it should be like a buffet of resources. Like if they're not going to work full time and they're not going to have a full time job, what can they other do on the other days? And that could be a volunteer that could be purposeful activities with their friends going out to lunch. We teach city, get on the city transit and going where they want to, um, so yeah, it started, we have an after school and a summer program for the school age kids so that families can continue to work full time. So we're open 7.30 to 5.30 every day. And so that was really a social a extracurricular activity, so to speak, and a, a fun summer camp for the, the younger. And then the older, it's more like a, a daily structure of a little bit of everything, exercise, going out in the community, just being with friends and community give back. Yeah. And we have now residential. It's crazy. I saw that. That's uh, another question I have for you. But, um, you know, I'm I'm thinking we're going to just, you know, hop over the river and uh, (laughs) move to Owensboro because I'm like so excited. I want Skylar invested in all of these things. Um, What is the criteria for, you know, so for someone like Skylar, who's um, not toilet trained and, uh, you know, at this current time, and if he's 22, 23, and he would come to your facility, he's nonverbal what type of assistance would he be able to have there or would he not really Mm -hmm. be a good candidate for it? Actually, that's why we started dividing into different program sectors. Um, uh, We kind of, you know, I'm trying to be politically correct in reference to like some families, us educators are very common to use high functioning versus low functioning. Um, And so sometimes that can be very offensive to some populations. And so, you know, if, someone's more impacted by their disability. Mm -hmm. Um, We have this program that the supports are a little bit more intense. Um, The hygiene care is there. Staff are trained. We call them direct support professionals. Staff are trained to do behavior intervention programs. They're they're, they're on picture schedules. They're they're more maybe one-on-one. So we're adjusting and shifting to their needs and we're trying to connect them and engage them of what that social activity looks like. Um, Probably our biggest success we had an individual he came to us after high school he had no he was um nonverbal, had no form of communication was not able to communicate his needs or wants and he was not toilet trained and so from the time he was 22 to 26 it just took consistent approach so like we're whole life right now you know like we're not following a school curriculum. We're just meeting them where they're at and really yep. honing in on skill development. And so now he uses pictures, picture exchange to communicate his needs and wants. He's learned how to have a sensory diet. So we're able to engage in the sensory processing of what his needs are. We've helped mom. Like now he can stay, his, her grandchildren can come over and he's able to tolerate that more family dinners. It's just what school couldn't provide him because you're changing teachers every year, you know, you're having to accommodate to another system and we're just, we're meeting them where they're at. So it's just, it looks different for everybody here. Um, And that's the glory net. Like that's the glory of what we do as programming. Our program is very person centered to meet the family and or that individual to where they, they need. It's really um, a whole life process. Gosh, what a wonderful unmet need that we have in every city and every state in the country. It needs to be modeled after this. This is so phenomenal. It gives me hope that there are facilities near us that can accommodate him and, you know, he can continue learning. I've talked to so many parents, as you probably have too, um, on your podcast about just the learning that a lot of them are seeing their young adults 
really, really learn and grow from the ages of like 18 to 25, they're gaining the most skills during that period of time for whatever reason, we can't really explain it. So I have so much hope still for Skylar. I've never, I know he has never hit his ceiling and he probably never will. And we're just going to keep, you know, pursuing things. I just don't want him to be sitting around at home. Like you mentioned with your brother, you know, initially becoming sedentary and not having anything that stimulates his mind, his body, just anything during the day when he's 25 years old, because he can't hold a job. And so we, you know, our, that was our only option at, at the time. So, you know, this gives me a lot of hope. <laughs> <laughs> well, and you know, it's funny that you say this and I'm probably going to step on a lot of toes and that's not really what I intend to. It's just to bring more awareness. But now that we serve almost 170 individuals and I've gotten to interact with a lot of families, what you just mentioned, like they, that families are seeing a lot of progress from like 18 to 26. We too see something remarkable happen during that moment. And personally, I feel it's because, and I saw this in my mom too, I saw a shift happen within parents that like, okay, let me take a moment and stop advocating. Not that I'm saying that you shouldn't stop advocating, uh-huh. but I think we, from birth until 18 years of age, we're giving all these milestones that we can then compare where they are on that milestone because they're going through school and we're constantly comparing where they are to their peers and the time to be able to, and the timeline Mm -hmm. to judge where they're going. We're preparing for what we hope that life will be after 18, right after school. But then there's this mind shift that changes for parents usually Mm -hmm. that, okay, let me, let me take a moment. And there is no comparison now because I don't know what every 18 to 26 year old, they're exploring what life looks like. I mean, so there's not a measure. And so they're just kind of taking back and listening and and like evaluating where their loved one is in relation to like, what's going to make them happy. Now, what am I not advocating for, but what is going to make them happy to push them in a way of just pure happiness? I don't know if that helped, but no, it totally does. It makes It makes sense. You know, it allows them, like you said, instead of following like a set ABA curriculum or a specific program, they're able to find happiness and joy in the little things. And then it helps us as parents go, oh my gosh, I didn't know, like in my case, Skylar likes kicking balls and playing sports and like things like that. And so if, if accommodations are made for them to do something they enjoy, then it only feeds them and they thrive on it and then they are happy and they pursue more and more things. I think I can only imagine because Skyler can't tell me at this point, but it's gotta be frustrating and a little defeating when you're given tasks in a specific therapy setting or, or school, and you can't really complete those tasks the way that it's outlined for you to do. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I can only, I know from myself that if I can't do something exactly the way I'm asked to do it, I get really just, you know, bummed out and kind of defeated that I couldn't handle the task the way it was outlined for me. So, I mean, just years and years and years of that, not meeting timelines, not meeting specific goals in the IEP, the way that we set them out, I'm sure it weighs on them quite a bit, you know, Mm. it's gotta be frustrating. (laughs) Oh, I'm yes. Well, and I think then there's so much data driven and I'm, I'm a huge supporter of all of that, but I think that that's kind of the gloriness thing of of puzzle pieces and where we're going, we're trying to now to even open an own autism center where we're serving 
you know, those that are even starting to get their diagnosis. So they're 18 months and, and older. Um, so for early intervention, and that's all going to be fine. But I think the biggest point that we try to do here is there is no timeline. We're trying to like shape those skills and there is no milestone we're trying to hit. And I think that that takes the pressure off and it's kind of, we call it NT, NET, natural environment of teaching. That's kind of what we do every day. Like we're, we're providing opportunities for them to learn and then we're meeting them where they're at and they're just their natural environment. Now, do you guys have a, um, not, not a formalized transition program, but if you've got somebody that's high school age and they're doing one thing at Puzzle Pieces, is there a certain point where you would start transitioning them into some of the adult services that you have and introducing them to the staff and kind of, you know, moving them along like we would do with an IEP, a transition IEP or something? Yeah. So I think it just depends on where their family's wanting them to like where we see their skill sets are and where families and, you know, goals are. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it depends on if they're wanting, because we have a supported employment. So we have this line where we go and we help them to get jobs and we support them in that. So we have a day program that's really set up to hone in on those skills. So like we've had two recently that they were in our school age population and it was about having fun and building social skills. Um, and I really approached their family. I'm like, okay, they really need it. They can have a job and you want them to go and live on their own. That's your ultimate goal. So let's start train. Like, I think we're holding them back because in one of our programs, it is more, I know that those families just want them to be happy and have friendships and they're going to live at home or with a family member, probably the rest of their life, because that's kind of what their design of their plan is. And so we just kind of navigate where they're at and we'll just shift them how it needs to go. And we all like, I have seven directors and we kind of look at them as a whole scope of like, okay, can this program now meet them? Or maybe it's not our program that they need. And, and, we need to like look at that to to make sure that we're getting them out there in a volunteer program or something like that. But no, there's no curriculum. There, I, I mean, know, you know, that's it's what's all cool in my head. It. <laughs> <laughs> it's great though because you have formalized training as far as the special education background, and then you have personal life experience with your brother and your parents, and you know, combining all those things, I feel like those are the best people to come up with places like this. And, and plans like this, because you can really speak from multiple levels of, you know, just interaction. And I, you know, you think of it from a, a family, a personal perspective and an educator perspective and families, I, I imagine would appreciate that, that you're, you know, looking at all angles, I guess. Um, I'm well, sure you've been told that. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, I think it kind of, in this kind of this story, um, it, it was really the icing that allowed me to know where I'm going. Um, and both from a sibling standpoint, but where I knew the impact was going to happen. And I had to follow my heart of designing the programs of how I wanted it to see out. But I remember we were doing services for an individual and we were at that time doing like respite on Saturdays And this, it, it was a single mom. Her son was 15. He has significant autism, nonverbal and had some behavioral um, concerns. And he had been going to our after school program and his mom dropped him off. And he went on because he knew the system. Our staff was trained and mom just like sat down there and like, she was crying. Like she stood outside the door and was looking back at me and she was bawling her eyes out. And this was like year one for, for puzzle pieces. And I opened the door back up and I was like, are you okay? Like, you know, like what's wrong? We, and she was like, 
this is the first Saturday in 15 years that I've, I've had time to myself. Like I don't, I don't have anybody that can take care of him. My family can't take care of him. I don't know what to do. And I'm like, girl, go get your nails done. Go get your, but in that moment, she didn't have any other children. It was just her son with, with autism. And it was like this, I started bawling. Like after she left, she doesn't know that, but I started bawling because I think the real purpose behind of that point of that Saturday was, man, if I could provide that, then if she had another child, she could go and take her daughter to go get her nails done or go have that moment and not have to worry about her son. And we could take care of that so they can work on their relationships with their other children. And I didn't realize that that's what I was doing until that happened. And that was that moment of like, piecing it all together and figuring out great program is also for families to be great. Like whether we, whatever we do with the client, it's not about their success is it's more about that family dynamic of if we can provide services that gives those, those parents, the break that they need, that respite of just like, okay, they're taken care of. I know they're going to be happy. I know they're not going to call me and tell me to come get them or that they just had a behavior or whatever. Then then they can kind of focus where they need to focus on and which ultimately would be, they're going to be better parents all the way around for all their children. And that's mm-hmm. really what I wanted and I to fill that gap for my mom and me as a sibling of what I missed. Yeah. I mean, that is, I, I could say with a hundred percent certainty, that is one of the biggest challenges for most of our families is having a break. We don't have any family here. We don't have respite because we can never find, even if we can get respite services, we can never find anybody that we feel comfortable leaving Skylar with because they're just not prepared to deal with toileting or a behavior or whatever. And then we can't enjoy even an hour to just go and take a deep breath because we're panicked about what's happening at our house. So I I would assume that your staff is very heavily trained and different levels. Like, like you had mentioned before, if it's somebody that's Mm -hmm. older and and needs additional services, um, support that that's who you hire and you have full trust in everybody that's walks through your doors. Right. It is. Yeah. I mean, I think training, whenever I go through the interview process and, and we hire, I think about what I want them to be with my brother and would my mom went. And I think that that does create a different culture here, um, that we, that we provide, but I, I'll be honest that I'm going to, I'm going to try not to cry. So I'm, I'm trying to, <laughs> I usually cry in like all of my podcasts. Um, <laughs> the weight is heavy. So now I've shifted and I'm not carrying the weight as a sibling anymore of like mm-hmm. just taking care. And I think I, I carry like this, this guilt, like I'm no longer worried. I have to fulfill the future for my, my own parents. And I know my mm-hmm. brother's going to come live with me um, if something was to happen to them. But now I just have this, this weight that I've put on myself of I'm the hope for a lot more families and that's magnified. And there's a lot of pressure um, for being the executive director of starting this nonprofit. I wouldn't change it, but it does come with, especially COVID, you know, in 2020, mm-hmm. 2020, it was a significant blow. And I feel like I suffered a lot of um, turmoil because I was trying to help all these families and I'm still doing that. And I don't want to trade that, but like, I don't, it's like, I'm carrying your emotional, like all of your fears that I know that's there. I'm carrying that now to figure out the answers to make sure that you can get the break you deserve and that you need. And that I know that families are out there looking for. Well, I'm not, I mean, 
that is very honest and vulnerable. Um, you know, on the other side of it, we just appreciate that somebody cares enough to develop a place like this. I mean, I know you're probably putting that burden on yourself to worry about everybody that you meet that comes in into the puzzle pieces doors. But um, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's just nice to be noticed. It's just nice to know that somebody out there sees the, the, the issues that we have as families and, um, you know, people like your brother, who um, I'm sure he is so proud of you. Oh my gosh, he probably tells you all, all the time. But uh, just knowing that- He has that, no idea. <laughs> that this model has been created though. I mean, you've done the legwork. You've done the really hard job of creating something like this that we all need so desperately. Hopefully people can model after this. And, you know, like I kind of joked about, I mean, franchise something similar all over. It's just- I would hope that people take great pains like you have to make sure that the people that are on staff and in place are the right people. This job, those jobs are not for everyone. They're very stressful. They're very challenging. You have to have the right temperament, patience level, all of that to deal with some of the things that come with people with disabilities. And um, there are tons of people out here in the world that are amazing. I mean, some of our therapists, I can add to that list. They are just I mean, my gosh, the things they go through, <laughs> the hair pulling alone is like, <laughs> I thought these people would quit us a long time ago, but they haven't. So <laughs> I'm well, grateful. And I think it, it goes back to like piggybacking off of what you're saying is I think there's also this awareness. Like, I don't think yet as a society that we as providers, like even what I do, like there's other providers just like me doing similar jobs but I don't think that we've been creating the stigma for like, I mean, we weren't even a deemed essential care through COVID. And so like, I think we still have to like, that's kind of where I'm advocating for. I don't think like the mental health, like we're impacting the emotional and physical health of not only individuals with disabilities, but they're, it's a domino effect to their families and yeah. then them being able to work and them being able, the other kids in the house, like the siblings, like it's a domino. If we're not fine tuning those providers that are providing those services and giving them the support and the advocacy that they need to be able to do a job well done and think about how it gets paid for as a state level, federal level, then, then we're just gonna, I think that comes from devout. I think it starts with devaluing those individuals with disabilities from mm -hmm. back in the day. I think we just got a lot more work to do in reference to that. Yep, we do. And I appreciate you spearheading it all <laughs> um, because in addition to puzzle pieces, not like that takes any of your time at all. Um, you're a blogger. You are a podcaster. Like I mentioned earlier, um, pieces of me are your blog and podcast. Um, and you recently opened, I think, I didn't know if COVID, if it's officially open, but the Owen autism center on top of it. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned too, that the residential facilities have opened. So, oh my God. I mean, you are such a special individual. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you really are an incredible person. Um, so what, how do you link in the, the blog, the podcast with everything else that you're doing? Is it another way to spread awareness of just, you know, the, the, the vast problem that we have with no services and no funding and all of those things, or what was kind of your intention behind those things? 
I think it started um, with in reference because I was approached from my local newspaper um, to start a column once a month and just share like for awareness about disabilities, like start shaping our community through that because of puzzle pieces. And then I realized like, whoo, I kind of like writing. I hate (laughs) writing. I'm horrible at it. No, you're not. I loved sharing a story and I realized that the impact it was making. And so the podcast, the blog, writing books, I think now it was that I realized I'm only setting my own limits and boundaries. I was only helping those families within the walls of of puzzle pieces. And so since launching all this, I realized like I, I want to be able to impact more than just the families I'm helping locally. So my phone rings off the hook and I have tons of emails and I almost felt overwhelmed because the weight was so heavy, but I also too was trying to figure out how to be a mom, how to be a business owner, how to be a wife. And I couldn't find the time for everybody. And then, so that put me down like this, carrying the weight and that emotional feeling guilty. And so I just thought like having the podcast and and having a message and what I would like to advocate for and the awareness, I do that through sharing through the stories on the blogs and the podcast and getting the messages of all the pieces of me, whether that's advocating for those with disabilities, the siblings, the parents, you know, business owners that should be more inclusive, those type of things. I just, I wanted to be able to share every piece and I couldn't do that with just talking on the phone with people. And my time was limited. Mm-hmm. I love that. And you referenced uh, books and um, I, you know, read your ebook that's available on Amazon about being a sibling. Oh my gosh. As I told you before we started recording, (laughs) I was almost in tears because um, I've talked about this on several episodes with other parents and just on solo episodes. You know, my daughter is two years younger than my son and um, they're both teenagers, but I know there have been a lot of struggles for her and she's not at that age where she's really comfortable talking about it. Certainly not the future and caring for her brother. If something were to happen to me, um, I, I just, I, I really don't know how to help her and how to be there. I mean, I'm there. She wants to talk, but I don't know if she wants to talk and I don't want to press the issue. And I want her to have her own life and not be burdened with her brother and all of that. I mean, it's so hard having a neurotypical child and a child with a disability. As a parent, you think you're failing everyone. You never are enough for each of the children in the way that they need you. So your ebook helps me tremendously. And I highly recommend it to everyone that has more than one child um, because it, it, it's just so nice to read your perspective and to validate some of those things. I'm thinking that it took you until your college years and your twenties to really relate your feelings and, and make sense of all of it. So um, mm-hmm. can you share a little bit about the ebook? I don't want you to give too much of it away so people will go out and read it. <laughs> Yeah, I think I just targeted like the different emotional, um, again, something I was able to process when I was an adult, I I didn't know what I was experienced when I was like surviving through, you know, like growing up with my brother. Um, And so through that journey, I realized as an adult, the how I process embarrassment, jealousy, sometimes hate, like I never, I felt bad of saying, I never felt like I could go to my mom and my dad, not because they, they weren't willing. It was just, I didn't want to burden, burden them with whatever they were already burdening with. So I felt like I was kind of the outsider looking into my family. I was 
I didn't have another sibling that was neurotypical. I kind of was mad that I didn't because I felt all alone in what I was processing. And it wasn't something I could do with an adult like my mom and my dad. I couldn't process with them. But I didn't know all that until I became an adult of looking back. And so because I feel like we make impressions and impact with people by being vulnerable of what we share, that was really the intention of the ebook. I wanted to be able to be vulnerable, not just for siblings to read it and be like, okay, it's okay to say that I hate the disability, but that doesn't mean I hate my brother. Mm-hmm. And it's okay to fear having conversations with your, your, you know, being embarrassed and not knowing what to say with your friends when they're coming over and you're trying to teach them about what could happen. Um, and so I just, yeah, I, I think it was meant to also be a tool for parents to read it, to kind of have an outlook of what's going with maybe their, their 16 year old, you know, like mm-hmm. kind of an inward because you're processing the journey as well. And so it's hard to relate to that. The sibling is actually having to grieve the diagnosis, understand and the acceptance and become an advocate in a different way. It's nice that you're putting a voice to the the assumption of the feelings that I think she's having. And maybe, you know, just by her reading it too, because I'm definitely giving it to her to read as well. Um, it might put words to what she feels and she might not have been able to articulate before, you know? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, she's a writer too. So I'm hoping that it inspires her to just journal her feelings and write it down and maybe she'll write a book someday. <laughs> about yeah, no. But, yes. um, and so I know that you, um, you are releasing for pre-sale. You already have actually March 21st, you released for pre-sale um, a three book series that dives into different disabilities. Is one book available or all the whole series? So one book is available. It's okay. the um, Owen the Wanderer is going to be the series. And um, Owen um, is the character, the main character. And through his curiosity, he's asking questions to learn about different disabilities and how to include and accept them. And it's based, it's targeted for ages, um, like middle uh, elementary school kids. So probably third to fifth grade. Um I realized that whenever I was advocating for my brother and even now, I don't think I say this all the time. I don't think that people intentionally try to not include or don't want to, you know, be friends with those with disabilities. I think it's a matter of they're scared to death of asking the questions to be like, okay, well, why do they talk like that? What is, you know, can down syndrome be something that's contagious? Like, why do they, why do they act like that? Like, I think that when you, when they're able to ask the why and you're able to teach them, then that's when acceptance and inclusion starts to happen because we Mm -hmm. as siblings get to ask the why. Um, And, but yet when we're advocating, like, I remember when, when my friends would ask, like, why does your brother act like that? Or why does he do that? I'd be like, well, I'll tell you, I'd rather you ask me than not. And so, I think that that's the intention of these books. It's going to target different disabilities and trying to, in a kid-friendly way for teachers and parents, not necessarily for those that are impacted by disabilities. It's really meant for the other opposite, for parents to have a tool to talk with their children at bedtime about maybe a, a classroom friend that has a disability. Like, I get questions asked like that. Like, how do I teach my children about disabilities that they have no idea the language or what to even say about Down syndrome, autism, cerebral palsy, all of that. So because I'm a nonprofit, 
<laughs> I needed a fundraiser. So really this book was meant to put that skills and be able to give back to puzzle pieces. And the characters in the book are from our hometown and centered around some of those clients that we have here at Puzzle Pieces. I love that. And I think it's so important for school systems, even, you know, we have autism awareness month, we have there's down syndrome awareness month, or I don't know if they call it awareness, but down syndrome Mm -hmm. education month. And um, for every disability, there is a targeted month of educating. It's a perfect time to read that book to the classroom, because I think you're right. I think a lot of kids do care and they're, they're, kind-hearted little people, I think they're just afraid to ask a question that might be insulting. And mm-hmm. like you said, I would much rather have that than be stared at when we're in public. The parents and the kids are just kind of staring right. and I'm like, come ask me a question. Or people ask me all the time, like, how does he like to be approached? I'm like, um, like a normal person. Can you walk up to him and say, Hey, Skylar, what's going hey. on? Don't talk down to him. Don't talk louder. He doesn't have any hearing issues. He, he can hear you just fine. You don't have to talk to him like he's four, you know, right. just talk to him like he's almost 18. He understands yeah. what you're saying. So just talk to him. He may not, you know, we always say he, he doesn't speak, but um, he understands you because right. I don't want, I don't want to make him feel bad, but I, yeah, I, I don't want them to keep asking him the same questions over and over be, thinking he didn't hear them. And I'm like, right. You know, we'll answer for him, but <laughs> I don't know. No, that's exactly try. what we want to target. I, I yeah. do too. I think, I think they just don't know how, and they don't also know how to ask the how. Yeah. So we're using this children's book. Owen is curious and he starts asking the questions like, well, how do I help communicate or how do I do this? And then we navigate that in a, in, in a kid-friendly version. I'm excited. Yeah, I'm excited too. I can't wait to get those. Um, so clearly you have nothing but time on your hands and, uh, you're um, a wife and a mama to two adorable little boys. Oh my gosh. They are so cute. And I know just from following you and, and being on all of your pages and stuff, you're super into fashion. What do you do for yourself and, and how do you love spending time with your family and your little boys? And, you know, how do you make time for all of that too? I think that's one of the pieces that I like to share the most is because you can, you know, we used to live in this world or the society norm of like, you can't have it all. Um, and, and I think that that's a false, a false belief that you can't have it all, but I think it's how you set your own boundaries and, and where you focus your attention on and what's priority in, in the time. So I had to learn that honestly, through the process. Um, I never wanted to be a stay at home mom or anything like that. So a lot of things I do for fun, um, you know, we, we go boating and stuff like that. We, we go camping, uh, like I'm about to take, I just took, um, in March, I took a, um, a trip with my girlfriends and just to get away. And I think it's important to just have self-care and, and, and know where, know who you want to be and, and not try to compare yourself to another person's journey. Mm-hmm. And I think I had to, I had to learn that developing, um, uh, of the judgment and things that come. And when you're advocating for something that's not a society norm and mm-hmm. you're advocating for something that is so, um, you know, not everybody perceives it the same way, you kind of have to be confident in where you're at. And I think that I had to learn that. And I had to know that my story is not going to relate to everybody, but my, that doesn't mean my story is not worth telling and it won't impact somebody. And I think that just filling myself up I like to wear high heels, but I also like to <laughs> wear PJs around the house. So, you know, I, I love some great fashion, but um, 
you know, I just love spending time with people. I'm fueled by people. I'm fueled by doing this and meeting other people. Um, you know, we can't pour from an empty cup. So it's really important to find what fills you up and, you know, all the things I do, it, it fills me. I love it. It's my identity. Well, and I'm sure your boys, um, you know, they have such a strong role model in you and your husband. I, I, I need to talk to him about some, um, some business, uh, like some uh, <laughs> remodeling stuff and whatever, <laughs> since that's yeah. his forte. But I mean, yeah. they, it's just so nice to be able to, you know, kind of turn things uh, another generation. You know, you're educating your boys, not only about their uncle and about people with disabilities, but they're seeing such a strong voice for the voiceless sometimes and an advocate for people um, in their mom. So, I, I mean, I just... I think that they are so lucky to have you guys as parents, but you know, just, you don't I'm going to call you later. What's that? I'm going to, I'm going to call you later and you're going to tell them that at bedtime. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Maybe they'll write a book about you when they're older. Like this is my mom. I advocated for everyone. So now we want to take over puzzle pieces. That's funny. (laughs) my, (laughs) My oldest Landon, I think he gets it. Like he's the one that asked about my, brother. It's funny to see, I think it's coming full circle and a lot of childhood memories are coming back to see them interact, um, mm-hmm. with my brother and, um, my, my oldest, he was actually a mentor here at puzzle pieces. And, you know, he talks about coming and working here, but he's very introverted. My youngest, he'll like ask me questions. Like now that my mom, like grand grand, that's what they call my mom. Um, when my brother spends the night or whatever, like when grand grand's away, does Nick still have a disability? Like, do I need to help him or is, can he do it on his own? I'm like, well, we're going to try to help him to do it on his own, but I mean, you can help him, but so it's just kind of cool to see how two people process it because it was me processing it by myself as a kid. Yeah, for sure. Is that question in the book, in one of the books, if they leave, do do they still have a disability? (laughs) No, no. You know, it's funny because there's so many things I want to write about now. And I'm like, oh, well, I've already written a kid's book. I can easily do another one. So like, there's so many ideas I have rolling and doing that. Who knows what will end up coming out? (laughs) The possibilities are endless, right? Yeah, (laughs) we could all benefit from your writing. It's I love your writing. I think you do an excellent job. I think you're too critical of yourself. Thank you. (laughs) So, you know, obviously we've talked a ton about you know, a lot of your passion, a lot of this started from being a sibling and clearly your parents did an excellent job with raising you and your brother. And because, I mean, I think even early on, you've mentioned that your advocacy started really when your brother was young and you were young, you always wanted him to be included, never excluded from things. You wanted him to share in every experience you shared in and you figured out ways, even as a kid to involve him and to make sure you know, he wasn't left out and you got that from your parents, obviously too. I mean, they were huge advocates of treating him just like you would treat everybody Mm -hmm. else and not isolating him. So because of your parents, or maybe in addition to your parents, do you think that that being exposed to some of those conversations, some of those things kind of made you the, the person and the advocate that you are today? And if you could give any advice to anyone, I mean, advice is a strong word. I know people don't always like to give advice, but if, if there are parents out there really struggling with how to interact their neurotypical children and their, um, dis, you know, children with disabilities and how to relate the two and have the conversations, would you suggest anything that your parents did that, you know, you really are grateful for? 
I think two things. I think that one is what to do and what not to do. And, and I don't want to think my parents are the reason I am who I am. So I, I, I don't want to say that they did anything wrong. Um, but now that I'm an adult and I'm processing it, I think looking back, what my parents did really well is they championed that I needed to have another outlet. So um, I played softball. I was really good at softball. And so they really heightened in on that. And they never, um, I say this all the time, they never made the excuse. If there was, if there was a reason why we couldn't do something as a family or I couldn't do something or they couldn't go with me somewhere was because of my brother, they used a different excuse. And so I didn't know that until I was till later, I processed that, but they might've made it to be a fine. I thought we had all kinds of financial issues <laughs> because <laughs> it was really, it was really, you know, like That's funny. <laughs> it was, you know, like we don't have enough money to do that. Or, you know, your dad's got to work and, and I have some, like I'm sewing, like they never, now I know it was really because they had to do something with my brother. But I think that that really shaped me to really not hate the disability more, if that makes any sense. Um, I, I, although I deeply knew that it was about that and we were able to laugh through that and not feel, they never felt sorry. Like I remember graduating from college and um, I was about to walk the line and I, I happened to see my parents up in the stands with my brother. And right before I was to get my diploma, I looked up and there goes my mom and my brother out of the stadium. And I like inside me, I was sad yeah. because my mom, my mom wasn't about to see, I'm going to cry. Um, <laughs> my mom wasn't about to see me graduate and get my right. diploma that I worked my butt off for. But then afterwards, it wasn't that my mom kind of teared up and she hugged me and she's like, you know, Nick, gotta go to the bathroom. You gotta go, you gotta go, you know? And it was like a laughter that like only we could laugh about, but, um, you know, she, she found other ways to, to feel and acknowledge how I might've felt in that moment. And I feel like that's what they did really well about, but the, what I would say not to do is they never addressed things head on. I heard them advocate. I would hear the fights or the advocacy my mom would do on the phone with mm -hmm. teachers or whatever but she didn't want to burden me with it. So I was never felt like I was part of the conversation. And with me knowing I wanted to be part of my brother's future and knew that that was going to be me, I wanted to learn. I wanted to learn how to advocate. I wanted to learn, but my mom didn't want to burden me with that. Right. They didn't want me to, they didn't want to feel like they were forcing that on me. And I didn't feel safe enough to say like, I want I want to be part of it. And so right. I felt like I was always not included in on the discussion or like, Amanda, we got to talk about, you know, like we got to make some hard choices or we got to talk about this. We need you to go in the other room. And I always felt like I was an outsider in my own family um, just because they didn't want to have the tough conversations with me. And I wish that they would have, like you mentioned, I think it was before we even started recording, you mentioned like you at least asked, like I was never asked. Um, okay would you like to talk about this? Um, so I think if I was asked, I think I would have been way more vocal about what I wanted, but I was scared to say I wanted it yeah. and they weren't asking. So it was like this unspoken relationship, even today, even today as an adult, we still struggle with having those conversations. 
Yeah, that's, I mean, it's, it is so hard because you don't want to, you know, speaking as a mom, I don't want to rob my daughter of her normal quote unquote childhood experiences. I don't want her to feel guilty when she's getting her driver's license. I don't want her to think about her brother in the times that she's supposed to be having her enjoyment with her rites of passage and the things that she's supposed to be excited for um, and opportunities she gets. And I also keep thinking about, you know, I want her to go to college and go to vet school and be a vet. And then when she's established, then we'll sit down and talk about all that stuff. But then I'm like, well, if I wait till then, she may already have her life plan figured out and go, mama, I'm moving to Colorado. Like I, you know, I can't, if, if you guys are here in Kentucky area, what am I supposed to do? And how would I change my life and move him out there? And I mean, you just never know when the right time is to have these discussions. Mm-hmm. The other thing we also started, and I hope it's the right thing is um, we, you know, a few years ago, we said to her, are you kind of tired of hearing like the periphery conversations, like you said, your parents had and stuff kind of hearing the outside. And um, do you, do you want us to just have those conversations without you and then dedicate dinner time when we eat together after he's already eaten and like that hour or so that we spend with her, we don't mention his name at all. We just talk about her and her school and her activities and what she's doing. And we don't talk about autism or her brother or anything so that she has undivided attention and it's about her and it's not about autism for once in this family and in this house. And I always worry that's wrong. Like, that, I mean, I know nothing's wrong, but like, that that's not the right angle to take. I, I don't know. I don't think there's a right or wrong. I think that so many times, um, and I, I realized this growing up and even now, but this is my own perspective. Um, I think too many times that families get, get guilty or one thing that I feel like my mom and we did well is we are not a normal family. It's not Mm -hmm. normal, Yep. (laughs) but this is the cars that are dealt. And here we go. Like, this is, this is what we do. And I think so many times, I don't think my mom and dad ever said, like, we want to try to make your life normal. Um, I think we just pivoted and went and I got to do what quote unquote normal things. Like I played on a softball team and they can make it, they can make it if they couldn't, you know, they relied on the village to help me to get through that, you know? Um, I think diving into me, like they invested, it might've been one at a time. It might've been both at a time, but they, they just allowed me to have another Avenue. And so we had something else to talk about. Right. Um, but I, I don't think that we ever, they tried so hard to lessen the disability or promote the disability. I think it was just it. It's just, but it was the family. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I don't think there was a comparison of like, I feel like, or this guilt of like, I feel like you're missing out on, because if it's not going to be the disability, it was going to be something else. Like I'm trying to think of like my friends, kids, you know, they have two siblings and they're both into sports and they're, they're, they're constantly figuring out how to divide and conquer. And they're not a unity as a family. And I'm thinking, well, I never had to deal with that. You know, like <laughs> I was the only port- sports person. So I guess yeah. I need to be grateful that like my parents were able to dive whole- wholeheartedly into my sports. So I think if we weren't navigating the disability, we'd be navigating something oh, else. Course. Yeah. Um, so I think just hit it head on. Yeah. And you never had to fight with your brother about who was taking the car, right? Like, I mean, <laughs> it was all no. about you. <laughs> yeah. So there yeah, are some, it was, <laughs> it was, it oh, definitely was. 
Um, well, um, in closing, I, I, um, I just want to reference one thing back to your ebook. Um, one of the things that hit me so hard reading that was the, the kind of the whole purpose you said of how you even came out with that book. And that idea was from, um, the, the blog that you wrote about, but it was a situation where you were in a classroom and you were giving a talk, um, a few years ago and the, the whole opening the door phenomenon, I mean, bawling, I was bawling. Can you just explain, um, in closing, like the open the door concept Mm. for people? I'm going to cry. I don't want to make you cry. I'm not Barbara Walters. (laughs) I'm so sorry. (laughs) No, I think it was just that moment. Um, so it was a career day and it was, I think she was in second grade and I was there speaking on career day and I was talking about puzzle pieces and the disabilities and the little girl come up to me and, and she said, um, my brother, I feel sorry for my brother. He has autism. And I, I, I looked down, you know, I, I knelt down on her level. And even then I was fighting back tears. And I was like, he doesn't want you to feel sorry for him. He needs you to be the door. And, and I don't know where that came from. It was just the, I feel like my entire life I opened the door for my brother, you mm-hmm. know, like I was scared to open that door and either walk first and drag him along um, so I could create an opportunity for him or I held his hand while he walked through that door. Mm-hmm. And I just, the, the door concept was just that we as siblings sometimes have to be the only ones that open it. Maybe parents are fighting to tear down the door and we as siblings just need to be willing to open the door, um, mm-hmm. and, and, and go through it with them, whether that is you know, with a friendship, whether that's with a job, whether that's with the life journey. I know one of the biggest things was my brother and I had to deal with me, me leaving for college. And that was probably the, the hardest door I had to open and go without mm-hmm. him. Um, but I also knew that like, I needed to come back home. And so I could go on forever about that. But like, I think too many times that we're scared of what's on the other side. Mm-hmm. So, and we want to protect them from this world. And we just either are too worried about advocating to knock down the damn door Mm -hmm. or we're too scared to open the door of the fear of what's on the other side. And I just say that no matter if you're a parent, no matter your sibling, we just have to, or a community member, a neighbor, you just have to be willing to open the door and walk their hand and, and take them through on the other side. Yeah. I love that. Sorry to make you emotional mm. today. No. <laughs> I think I cried every time I talk about this. I'm just so passionate well, about it. Well, I mean, it's a beautiful analogy. I love it. And I will forever think of that now. I mean, you know, it, it, you you sum it up so beautifully, much, much better than I could. Uh, so please, everyone, read her ebook on Amazon. I will link that up um, and connect with Amanda um, on her uh, Facebook page, Pieces of Me. Uh, listen to her podcast. Mm-hmm. And that's on... Apple. I think all of them. Yeah. All, all Apple, platforms. Spotify. That's yeah, pieces of me uh, as well. Yes. So you guys follow her and uh, all of her knowledge. <laughs> and, and we're going to start getting an influx of people moving to Kentucky. I have a feeling <laughs> so we're going to secure our place <laughs> right now. Oh, yeah. It's hard well, to believe you. it's, I love meeting somebody else from Kentucky that oh, is I know. passionate. It's crazy. Well, I'm going to get over there and, and see it in person, but um, thank yeah. you so much. It was such a pleasure talking to you today. Thank you for having me. It was a great experience. <laughs>
and we'll have a great rest of your day. You too. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed this episode of Living the Sky Life and we'll tune in for the next episode coming soon. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the Living the Sky Life podcast within Apple Podcast, Spotify, and Google Play so you'll receive alerts when new episodes are released. Subscribing is the best way to ensure you don't miss a single episode. If you like what you hear, be sure to select the five-star rating, provide feedback, and share Living the Sky Life with others. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>